Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Man in the RV. The other day, I remember this one little story that happened to one of my friends, his old neighbors. His old neighbor lived in a really small RV park. Anyways, he liked to go back there to visit her a lot, since they were pretty close. I was his ride at the time, so I would usually end up hanging out there with him. The small RV park was located right off a main road or highway that led directly into one of our small historic townships. The park was shaded by mostly tall oak trees, so it was often nice and breezy in the hot summers. Since it was such a small neighborhood in the RV park, everyone had no choice but to know everyone. While we were hanging out over there one day, my friend's former neighbor and her other neighbors started commenting on the fact that there were tons of ants. That was unusual to them, since they had lived there for years and never had that problem before. Eventually, after dealing with the ants being absolutely everywhere for a couple days, my friend's old neighbor decided to go outside and try to track the ant trails to see where they were maybe coming from. 
She ended up tracking them to an RV that was one space away from hers. There she found several trails of them both going into and coming from this man's RV. Everyone in the little neighborhood knew that the man who lived in that RV was somewhat of a hoarder and he was not clean at all. So she knocked on his door a few times, but he didn't seem to be there. So she decided to tape a note on his door for when he got home. In the note, she asked that he please have his son maybe pick up some mount traps and also to have him maybe clean up a little. The man who lived there was quite weak and ill with MRSA. I believe MRSA is a disease that can be passed through bodily fluids and such, and I also believe it is eventually fatal. Thankfully, though, he had his son around to do his errands and some other things to help care for him. A couple days after she'd left the note on his door, she got a knock on her door, and it was a man's son. What he had to say was the grossest and most horrifying thing to me. What had happened was that when the man's son came by to take his dad to an appointment, he knocked but didn't get an answer. As he was waiting for his dad to answer, he realized that he hadn't heard from him in almost a week. I guess his dad usually called him at least every other day or so. Since his dad wasn't answering him, his son went to go grab the spare key that his dad had given to him previously. When he let himself into his dad's RV, he made a morbid and terrifying discovery. He found his dad's decomposing body still in his bed, totally covered in ants. He ran out of there, and it didn't take long for a neighbor to find him sobbing next to his vehicle. Within minutes, the whole small community had heard the gruesome news. As it just so happened, I had taken my friend over there for us all to hang out again, um, on the day his old neighbor had heard the terrible news, we didn't even get a chance to sit down before she was already telling us about it. As she was telling us about all the ants on his body, I just couldn't help but to think about how ants come into your house, crawl all over your sinks, counters, and dishes, and even in your food. So, for whatever reason, the ants were truly the most horrific part to me. After all, MRSA can be passed through bodily fluids. We didn't go back there for a while after hearing that. When we did, though, they were still in the process of trying to move the RV out of there, and that was after a man in a full hazmat suit spent days cleaning it out. The whole thing just kind of freaked us all out, though, especially the damn ants, for real. When I was about 15, I was hitched, hiking along the Huam Highway in Tasmania, and a cabbie stopped ask if I needed a ride. No problem, right? Wrong. He wanted to pay me $300 for sex. I was a kid looking for a ride because my aunt had an emergency at work and couldn't pick me up from soccer. He forced himself on me about 15 minutes drive from my aunt's where I was living humped my ass crack, pushed me out of his car, and literally threw $40 in $5 notes at me, left me shaking, confused and alone just after dark, barely dressed and scared out of my brain. Needless to say, I don't trust cab drivers who pull up to offer rides anymore. If I didn't call you, you can ride off. Also, this was late 90s, very early 2000s. 
I remember some houses still had Christmas lights up, and I have read some absolute horror stories about weird Uber drivers. Suffice to say, I got off lucky as F. No forced penetration, no beaten to a pulp, no being robbed of my last dollar, just a ruined dress and a horrible memory. Edited it was midnight-ish at the latest 1 a.m. I was alone and in my soccer jersey, which clearly stated Hobart Jr.'s on the front and back. Edit 2. Grammar and Spelling. I was out camping by a lake with around 20 people during a summer camp program. We had just finished cleaning up after dinner, and it was getting late, so people started going to the bathrooms that were about one quarter of a mile away from our campsite. After I'd finished cleaning, I decided to go to my tent to read without being eaten alive by mosquitoes, but I didn't realize how late it had gotten until one of the counselors asked me if I still wanted to shower before going to sleep. She offered to walk with me and wait by the door but I turned down the offer and went on my own. I wanted to be quick, and I thought they would slow me down. The walk over there was perfectly fine. In fact, it was very peaceful. But when I was almost done with my shower, I began to faintly smell something that was like a mixture between cigarette smoke, piss, and a rotten carcass. When I had gotten dressed and gathered all my things, I exited the bathroom, and as soon as I opened the door... The smell got so bad that my eyes started to water, and I almost puked. I looked to my right and nearly screamed when I saw an old man standing just two feet away from me. He was definitely the source of the smell. It looked like he had rolled in the dirt, and his eyes looked dull and slightly cloudy. I said hello and asked if he needed any help, but he didn't respond. He just kept staring at me with unblinking eyes. I repeated my question slightly louder in case he couldn't hear well, but I still got no response. The hairs on my neck were on end and my mind was screaming at me to get away from him as fast as possible, but I felt completely frozen and all I could do was stare back at him. After a few seconds I was able to get control of myself and I started to slowly back away from him. When I was a few feet away, I turned around and started to quickly walk back to camp. I looked over my shoulder and saw him walking after me, but when I started jogging, he turned around and walked off in the opposite direction. When I got back to camp, I went straight into my tent and sat in fear almost all night. I never saw the man again, and I really hope it stays that way. Be me standing watch lay on a moon-filled night as the ship eases through the ocean thousands of miles from anywhere on some bees off or other. See two other dudes also standing watch but standing around, the three of us talking about whatever. Look up and see a smoky contrail easing through the sky, thinking that planes do that all the time. Point it out to the other dude so the one dude can report it in a prompt military manner. Keep watching the contrail as it stops, like literally stops, in the sky. The folk planes don't do that. MFWU contrail starts retracting along its original path at the same speed as the approach, until it completely disappears. Be one of three dudes that shares licks and agrees we can never mention that shit because no one will ever believe us.
On June 1, 2017, I was heading to the hiking trails behind my town's local high school with my dog. It was fairly late at night, and I had gone there many times before since I was young, so I wasn't frightened. While I was walking my dog, he kept trying to stop and was whimpering, which was strange because he is normally a very brave dog. After walking for about ten minutes longer, I heard huge branches crashing and breaking. That's when I started to become frightened and decided to turn back. As I walked back, I could tell that something was following me. I was terrified. Suddenly, after a minute of calmness, this creature leaped in front of me across the trail. The creature had long, dark fur and was enormous. It wasn't a bear. It was more like a very muscular, huge wolf. After seeing this, I picked up my dog and sprinted off the trail, never seeing it again. That was easily one of the most terrifying nights of my life. Lutz had drawn this picture for his friend Harold Underhill. This is a depiction of the creature that Lutz encountered during an early morning fishing trip on June 22, 1963, at the south end of Dewey Lake. I was out there to catch some perch, and the pre-dawn darkness enveloped the area. As I focused on my fishing, I noticed a large triangular shape bobbing on the surface of the remote section of the lake. Curiosity got the best of me, and I approached it, initially thinking it might be the head of a giant snapping turtle. However, as the sun started to illuminate the water, I could see more clearly. To my astonishment, the triangular shape was actually a large log with shaggy red markings. I couldn't fathom how a cedar tree had ended up in the water. With my oar, I tried to roll the log over, but when I made contact with it, the log suddenly stood up in the water revealing a massive animal. This creature stood at approximately 10 feet tall, emitting an increasingly loud clucking sound that grew so piercing it became painful. The animal fixed its gaze on me before slipping back under the water and disappearing, moving away like a crocodile. I had no idea what I had just witnessed, only that it was something far from home, something that didn't belong in Dewey Lake. When I shared this story with my friend Harold Underhill, he couldn't help but laugh and accuse me of being drunk. Nevertheless, I sketched out the picture for him and held firm to the validity of my account until my passing in the early 80s. In another strange encounter during a hot and muggy evening in late July of 1963, my friends Alan Razak and Bob Ford decided to brave the thick weeds and mud to carry their canoe to the water's edge. I remember thinking we might get stuck in the mud with the canoe on our heads. But we had heard the fishing was exceptional. Little did we know what we were in for. The mud was even worse than we'd heard. A thick, black, deep muck, according to Bob Ford. Despite the muddy ordeal, we believed it would be worth it as the lake wasn't heavily fished. Covered in mud and exhaustion, we finally managed to get the canoe into the water. It was pitch black beneath the surface, and we couldn't see a thing. Even our flashlights couldn't pierce the darkness. Suddenly the water splashed around us. We sat there, straining our senses to make sense of the situation. The boat started rocking, and then came another splash larger and louder. Next, we heard a strange sucking sound, followed by a roaring noise. 
like that of an angry animal. We sat there in stunned silence, trying to comprehend what was happening. Then we heard something breathing, sounding like a bull. We could vaguely make out a large black shape in the water. Terrified, we started paddling furiously. Alan and I managed to get the canoe out of the water and rushed back to the safety of the weeds. When we got to Moore's truck, we loaded the canoe hastily, failing to secure it properly. Not even a mile down the road, we had to pull over to fix the canoe, which had come loose and smashed on the road. That's when Jim Casey, who had driven up on us, expressed his bewilderment. He said, it, it was weird because I just saw this mess in the road. Then I talked to them, and it was a weird thing. A couple of tough old birds talking about this thing in Mud Lake. It did make me think twice every time I drove by Mud Lake. Years later, I confided in my daughter, admitting that the incident on Mud Lake had been the strangest thing that ever happened to me. I told her to stay away from those lakes because something lives in them. Background. We're at an Airbeam, Washington state, not far from Met Rainier National Park. Our Airbeam host was outside on her horse pasture feeding her horse. We all went outside to greet her and thank her for accommodating us. She lived across the street, so she offered to show us her other property, with more horses and a few other farm animals. We pass her house and are now in her backyard. Our host, let's call her Michelle, gets us in a circle and whispers, So, do you guys want to go back home with a story? Intrigued? We say yes, and we had no idea what we were in for. She takes us past one of her two barns, and we walk into her wooded backyard along a foot trail that she takes her horses on daily. About 100 feet in, she stops us. Look down, she says. We see what appears to be a footprint, yet wider and longer than that of a human's. It was especially long, so whoever left the print must have slipped in the mud. They were toe imprints as well. She then begins to tell us that this imprint was made by none other than a Sasquatch. While huddled around the imprint, she tells us how she got her house and then her second property across the street, our Airbeam. You might think I'm crazy, but if I knew about their existence, I would have never had moved here. Do you want to see more? Of course, we, uh, group of 420, something year olds do, so Mikhail takes us further down the path. At this point, it I was feeling a bit uncertain about what was coming or about to happen. Hair stood up on my arms and I got the chills. I kid you not. Seconds later, Michelle says to us right about this point. Here is where you might feel some chills or your hair sticking up. She was spot on here and I was feeling very uneasy about going forward. Yet we walk a little bit further down the path. They had asked me to bring you guys here. They wanted to say hello, Mikhail told us. I've never brought any of my guests back here before, but it seemed important to show this to you guys. We had no idea if we were going to see anything, as it was getting darker and darker out. We stopped for some more conversation, when Mikkel stopped us from talking. Shish! We didn't hear anything. We're all still quiet when Mikkel asks us something peculiar. Has any of you recently lost a brother, or have any of you ever experienced psychic abilities? We all say no. It felt a little awkward, and we moved on. 
We go to the last point in our walk, and she was astonished. She had laid some sticks down earlier in the day, and the arrangement of sticks had changed. They're always mischievous and like to move things around to mess with us, McKell explained. She also was saying how she left a deceased chicken right at that spot, and it was gone. The Sasquatch people must have taken them. She said she often leaves them gifts, usually food, here, and they're gone before she knows it. At this point, I'm feeling skeptical about all of this. I'm not a believer, but I also didn't have any reason not to believe any of this. We were all quiet. Out of nowhere, we hear a noise far back into the woods. It sounded like an owl's hoop, but very, very far away, Michelle said. Oh, that's just an owl. But then she took it back when we heard the next noise. I can't recreate the noise in person, nor can I recreate it in my head. But I'll do my best to describe it. It sounded like a monkey's ooh-oh-ah-ah, uh, mixed with the laugh of a hyena. Michelle assured us they meant no harm, and that was definitely them talking to us. She yells back in English to greet them, because they can understand our language as well. We head back to the Airbnb and talk about nothing other than our experience for no less than two hours, while drinking, of course. I'm with my best friends, and one of them makes it their mission to go back into the woods to search for the Squatch himself. The other one tags along, but I stay back because I didn't really want much to do with it. They leave, and I go grab a joint to smoke out on the deck. It was silent. Nothing but me, the cabin, and the beautiful Washington State wilderness. Then I heard it again. The same owl hooed in the distance, followed by the eerie-sounding monkey noises. I was alone and stayed up another hour until my friends returned and told them I had heard it again. Yet, strangely, they didn't. Before I went to bed, I googled something along the lines of Washington State Creepy Laugh Animal, and the first result was an article titled, Bigfoot are Animals, Hair-Raising Sounds Coming from a Swamp on Indian Reservation in Oregon. My friend Leon Brosnan and I shared a deep love for fishing. We had heard about the exceptional fishing at Gear Lake, but unfortunately there wasn't a public boat launch available. Nevertheless, we managed to secure permission to put our boat in the water on an early Wednesday afternoon and after school. Both of us were eager to test our new head on lures. I remember Leon teasing me for using a steel leader on my lure, but I insisted on it to prevent losing it, even though he jokingly claimed that steel leaders were only for sharks. Leon mentioned that we were using a heavy test line, probably too heavy for the type of fishing one typically does in a landlocked lake, but we held on to our fantasy of hooking a 25-pound bass, which made it all the more exciting. Little did I know that our fishing adventure would soon take an unexpected turn, and I would witness something I couldn't quite believe. As we cast our lines, I aimed my hook with the steel leader toward the northern edge of the serene lake and our red and white bobbers rested undisturbed on the still water. We were growing a bit disheartened because we had gone through so much trouble to access the lake, yet we weren't getting any bites from any fish. Not a bluegill, not a perch, nothing. We had brought along some bologna sandwiches and cokes, and as I turned around to grab our food and chat with Danny, 
I noticed a sudden change in his expression. My fishing pole jerked, then settled back. Leon's reaction was even more intense, and he couldn't stop exclaiming holy crap over and over. His eyes were wide with disbelief. It turned out that I had to reel in my line, only to discover that the steel leader had been bitten clean through. Leon held up the end of his paddle and described how he saw a massive mouth emerge over the top of the bobber, a mouth as big as the paddle itself. It had chomped down on the line and tugged at our canoe before finally breaking free. It was a colossal mouth covered in hair, and I could have sworn I saw eyes just before it slipped back beneath the water. Leon later confessed this extraordinary encounter to a Department of Natural Resources, DNR, representative. The DNR guide we spoke to afterward suggested it might have been a garfish. However, Leon adamantly stated, I've been fishing my whole life and I've seen garefish. That was no garfish. As for me, I wish I had been the one to see it, but I couldn't get over how something had bitten through that steel leader. It must have had razor-sharp teeth or an incredibly powerful jaw. The following terrifying stories are from the files of the United States Park Service. January 4 to October 23, 1955. Distorted Animals a series of animals were found in distorted shapes, their heads shaped like tumors and had extra eyes, mouths, legs, and sometimes organs. This became documented as a strange birth, defects due to the environment. However, things became worse and people were reporting that a creature that allegedly resembled a human stomach and intestines as legs was eating the birds and insects in the region. When they approached the foul-smelling heap and sprayed with a noxious and caustic substance that caused temporary blindness and skin irritation. However, sightings of the visceral abomination became deadly when a forest ranger found human skeletons around the area and a yellowish substance was found on the bones. Their clothes were partly burned by caustic juice and skin embedded in the fabric. On January 10, 1955, a man claimed to have seen a giant rat with large fangs and glowing red eyes and cloven feet. He estimated that it was the size of a goat and was chewing on a bird. He reported it to the forest rangers and told him he wasn't the only one who reported a giant rodent in the area. A couple was walking down a trail and stumbled upon a huge pile of animal bones and footprints of a three-toed creature were found near the site and a series of claw marks on the trees were found as well as skulls hanging from branches. A moment later, the two heard blood-curdling screams from the forest. Missing Persons A couple named Gregory Dean and Francine Swartz was last seen alive in a remote area on the night of January 11, 1955, while hiking up a steep hill. Years later, two skeletons were found in a patch of grass with petrified moss clinging to the bones. Identified as male and female, the autopsy report on the skeletons includes a highly corrosive acid digested them alive. However, there were no reports of anything that could cause such burns on the two. However, a tunnel was found large enough to have fit two people in, 
and needle-like teeth seen strewn across the entrance of the tunnel. In February of 1955, a man named James Henderson went missing in the state park and was found infused to a tree, his corpse mummified, his clothes and tendrils wrapped around his arms and legs. A green ooze dripped on the ground and that smelled like bile and rotten flesh. The tree cut down, revealing a network of intestinal roots squirming around for nourishment, and a wheezing sound was heard throughout the tree. In the trunk contained a huge amount of skulls and bones of both human and animal, samples of the tree taken to a top-secret base in the United States. On February 5, 1955, a park ranger named Andrew Lawson disappeared from the face of the earth when he separated from his group. And years later, his remains were found frozen in a deep lake. In a candle lake, a man named Ethan Morgan disappeared and later was found barely alive and his hands were frozen. He somehow managed to have lost his way into the forest and stuck between a rock and a tree for 48 hours and climbed out of his prison. My wife and I witnessed a dogman-looking creature, possibly a doyu, Monday night, August 7th, 23, while driving northbound on Route 65 Sharpsburg Pike, south of Rockland Drive. Just south of Hagerstown, Maryland, at approximately 22 hours ESAT, we had just left the AC&T ICNIC Travel Center. That's located at the intersection of Route 65 and Lappins Road after eating dinner there. It was dark out, with the only light illumination being that from my own headlights, some street lights and headlights from a single approaching car. At the initial time of witnessing the creature, the approaching car was approximately 500 feet in front of us. I was driving and my wife was in the front passenger seat as we were approaching Rockland Drive. Something immediately caught my attention in my left peripheral. When I looked over, I saw what appeared to be a dogman, licking creature running at a super fast pace right towards the road from an open field. I quickly realized that if I maintained my own driving speed, I might actually hit it if it continued coming across the road, so I immediately came down pretty hard on the brakes. As it got closer to the road, my headlights put some limited illumination on the creature, but I never got closer than approximately 20, 550 feet from it. As soon as I hit my brakes, my wife exclaimed, What the hell is that? As it got up by the road, the approaching car started to make it harder to see due to its own headlights, and we lost sight of it, never to be seen again once the car had passed us. We don't know if the creature crossed behind the passing car or, or not, as we never witnessed it actually come onto the road. As crazy as it sounds, I don't know if it actually may have hurtled our vehicles, and we didn't see it do that or what. With its speed and build, I would have to say that it very well may have had that ability to do so, but obviously I can't say for any certainty. We were both very shaken by what we had just witnessed. I grew up in the Fresno County in Kings County area of California. Strange things are going on for sure. 
My dad and I had an experience one night while driving on a foggy country road at night. It was extremely foggy and you could barely see the road, but I noticed a red light was following us above the power lines. I thought that was strange, so I asked my dad who would be crazy enough to fly a plane above the power lines on a foggy night. He thought that was weird, too, so he pulled over to have a look. That's when it got weird. I don't know why and still can't explain it, but I completely panicked and begged my dad to please not get out of the car. The last thing I remember is curling up in a ball on the floor to hide. I don't know why. I remember nothing after that, and my dad would never talk about it, no matter how many times I brought it up. My dad passed away over ten years ago, so now I'll never know what happened when he got out of the car. But I will tell you this, after that happened, I was totally terrified of my bedroom window at night. I would wake up so scared I couldn't move, and when I finally could, I'd run into my parents' room and crawl into bed with them. This didn't happen before the incident, but after. My dad was really never the same after the incident. He was withdrawn and not as outgoing as before. My mom noticed the changes as well. I don't know if he confided in her, but she has never mentioned anything about the night in question. I just suppose that he never told her what happened either. We moved up north to Modesto for a couple of years and never had any more nighttime freakouts. But I still feel chills when I remember the whole thing. I'm packed and ready to leave, so I've got some time to write all this down. Grandpa is talking with the two trucks that just pulled up, still waiting on the last one. Then we're headed north. For now, I've got time to kill. I always meant to do this, and it's officially now or possibly never. Fair warning, this is a long one, folks. Eight pages. Buckle up. And if anyone in East Texas wants to tag along, message me. We're taking as many people as we can get. My hands tugged down at the pillow on my head. It didn't help. This was the third night in a row they were unhinged in the tree line, and my room at the end of the double-wide trailer put me right beside their ceaseless barking. I peered to my left as my thumb unlocked the iPhone screen on the nightstand. 1.30 a.m. I thought how I'd ask my dad about kenneling them on the porch, knowing he'd give me some excuse about them being necessary for our home. The first line of defense, our protectors, our alarm system. Looking back, we should realize it then. To their credit, Daisy and Rose excelled at their duty. All Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A manner of interloper received a billowing cascade of howls and barks on our property. I thought how scared a single raccoon, possum, or coyote must have felt when the sisters barreled into the tree line at them, shattering the peace of the night. The echoes that trailed through the woods gave every impression there were more than two guards. None stayed to find out. They often startled me awake when the pair flew off the porch in an eruption of sound. My room filled one corner of the trailer pointing east towards our driveway, the forest a dozen yards beyond. My uncle and cousins hand-built the pine porch that I unfortunately shared a wall with. I had no bed frame, my mattress on the floor, next to my stubby short nightstand. Over the years, I'd learned the pattern of footsteps, both inside our trailer and the outside porch. I could feel them, the heavy boot-clad stomps of my father, the dainty steps of my little sister, the multiple light paws as the girls returned from driving off a wood, being Vader. I could identify everyone by their steps. The dog's normal process was broken these last few nights. Normally, once an intruder was identified, one of them would sound off. The second would answer the call, affirming backup. Together, they would drive with speed and resonant fury towards the enemy. They charged the trees, the interloper fled, the night returned to peace. We never had more than one incident per night, though it was always jarring when it occurred. This was different. For three nights straight, Daisy and Rose came alive with activity as soon as the evening dusk gave way to full darkness. They slept during the day now, not naps, deep, full sleep to regain their strength from the prior patrol. Then together they prowled the edge of the black woods, low growls and occasional half-grunts ran the full duration of the night. More than once they would erupt in blistering, synchronized anger but eventually returned to their tense surveillance. There were no more one. Off encounters ended with a blitzkrieg of ferocious intimidation. It was hourly now, consistent. Whatever they drove off kept coming back. I rolled onto my back and stared at the lightly luminescent sticky stars on the ceiling. My baby sister and I found a bag of them at the local dollar store, and my father always melted under the combined pressure of his daughters. We initially agreed to split the bag between our rooms, but after putting half up in mine, she insisted we needed them all to make a real night sky. She slept in my room for a week straight after that, together looking at our tapestry of glimmering plastic, our own little universe. I stared at them as the barking pushed further away, me silently hoping they'd continue into the distance for the remainder of the late hours so I could get some sleep. This is when my life changed forever, at first. I thought my exhausted mind played a trick, 
reminiscing about building galaxies with my sister had pulled me away from reality, and the sharp, distant yelp brought me back. I sat up in my bed, held my breath, ears perked. The still far barking became high-pitched, strained, desperate. It was coming closer, and most noticeably, it was alone. At fifteen, I was probably too old to still wear the pink, my little pony pajamas my aunt had got me for Christmas, but they were just too comfy. Clothed feet slid into loose flip-flops as I stood to make my way to the door. There was no doubt in the second yell, followed by a hyper-stuttered half-bark, half-squeal, much closer than before, practically in our driveway. It strained, struggled, then ended abruptly. For the first time in three nights, I finally got what I wanted, and it filled me with dread. Silence. I opened my door the same time my little sister opened hers. Her ten-year-old frame peeked nervously around the edge of her white door across from mine, eyeing me over the small gap that separated our rooms and led to the kitchen, before either of us could step onto the five-feet-long, four-feet-wide landing of carpet that separated us. My father's shadow burst into the kitchen, shotgun in hand. Stay in your rooms. Lock your doors, he commanded mid-stride. My mother's smaller frame quickly waddled behind him in a purple nightgown. He hit the front door with force. My room rattled as the wood slammed against the outer wall. I felt his steps hurriedly descend the five porch stairs and vanish into the drive. The glow from the now-lit overhead porch light illuminated a single yellow square from the front door's window. The light stretched down onto the linoleum to my right, just past the dining table, and landed next to the little gap between our rooms. Mom's shadow appeared in it a moment later, and I heard every lock we had latched beneath worried fingers. Mommy? My little sister asked with a child's innocence. Neither of us moved from our respective doctor of cracks. Mom rounded the corner. Hurried fingers fumbled with her phone. It's okay, Melissa. It's going to be okay, she said. She lied. It's hard to describe that square of light on the kitchen floor next to me. How it's burned into my memory. The front door was just around the corner from my room. It would be easy to take two rights and walk straight outside. To see the situation with my own eyes, to no longer linger in that tense confusion. I would not be able to see anything from the only window in my room, which faced south on long side of the trailer. Curiosity began to get the better of me, but I stayed. Mom walked into my sister's room, attempted to comfort her and guide her back to sleep. As the oldest, I received no such consideration, though I stood there a long while as if expecting it. I could see their shadows moving inside Melissa's room, could hear their worried whispering. My heart sank when I felt the first step of the porch bend downward. The thought of it being my father vanished as the weight warped and popped the boards underneath its mass. My breathing halted again, but this time not by choice. Instinct froze me in place, paralyzed everything. A second heavy footstep cracked the third board, completely skipped the second. I stared at that golden square of light next to me. Anticipation and fear grew in equal amounts. The fifth porch step protested next. The boards buckled and twisted beneath monstrous weight. The contrast is what haunts me the most, I think. The shadows of my loving mom and sweet sister in a darkened, half-lit gloom across from my door. 
the hairy black shape that grew into the yellow square shining on the kitchen floor. I could see both practically one in each eye, comfort and love, unknown and horror, things I cherished, and a thing I feared. Even from the silhouette, I could tell the hair was coarse and all-encompassing. A large cone-shaped head rose from wide shoulders. I couldn't tell if it had a neck, not much taller than my father, yet horrifyingly heavier. It faced through the window, unable to see any of us from the unlit kitchen and around the sharp corner. Luckily, we had turned on no other lights, but I wasn't sure if it could hear their muffled conversation, as quiet as it was. I found some courage at that, slowly opened my door wider, prepared to sneak over to them and lock ourselves inside Melissa's room together. I heard a guttural, low growl, and somehow I knew it was annoyed. It turned to its side, looked up. The shadow of its face was long, too long. What looked like large eyebrows fell into a flat nose, and a jaw that extended well down to its chest. I couldn't see the rows of teeth therein, but knew they were there. I couldn't think of a single animal with a large, oval-shaped head like that. Not even a mythical of one. With the twin sounds of a small grunt and glass breaking, the light from the porch vanished. The kitchen plunged back into near-complete darkness, taking the yellow square with it. I heard my mom and sister pause, finally aware something was out there. If they tried to look now, it would see them. I had to prevent that. My foot lightly touched the carpeted space between our doors. The entire trailer shook with a violent impact and a deafening, primitive roar. The front door slid past on the kitchen floor, buckled into the center and nearly split in half. Hinges, locks, glass, and splinters flew like insects. They ricocheted and clattered off every surface. Hanging lights and closed blinds swung as the entire trailer rocked on its foundation. Instantly, I moved. Without thought, without choice. Somehow, I knew this was my one chance, a desperate and reactionary motion. To use this momentary chaos to mask my actions, a storm of sound to cover my own. I grasped my sister's door handle and slammed it shut, instantly retreated into my own room in the same motion and slammed mine as well. Only then did I register the massive bloody footprint on the crumpled front door. I sat on the floor, back against the plain wooden door that would not save me. My breathing became a ragged mess. Shallow and still too noisy, even with both hands latched over my mouth. Head was dizzy, ears thumped from the hefty dose of adrenaline my brain flushed into every corner of my body. Yet even then, the only clear thought that repeated in my mind was a desperate plea for my mother and sister. Not to scream. That thought scattered as a new material twisted and cried nearby. Linoleum. A single titanic foot crushed glass and tile underneath. Heavy deep sniffs filled the kitchen with more curiosity than anger. Maybe we would be lucky and the hungry nose would lead it to the pantry near the front. Maybe it would leave after gorging itself on potatoes, bread, and apple cinnamon toast crunch. I waited, cool beads of sweat formed on my skin, back still pressed against the bedroom door. To their credit, my mother and sister could have vanished for all the sound they made. A second step bent the floor again as it fully entered our home. I considered running then. This was my best chance. I glanced at the trophies on the shelf. 
some toppled from the earlier impact. Most earned as the starter for the track and field relay race team, with a few from various cross-country meets. I was fast, surely faster than that huge thing. If I went now, I'd be within arm's reach of it only briefly, but the element of surprise was on my side. I could run straight through the trailer and head out the back door in the laundry room. It didn't know the layout inside. Another advantage, this was the best time to lead it away. Then I could surely outrun that massive monster once I got it outside, right? My budding confidence exploded in the same manner the dinning table did. It slammed against the kitchen cabinets like a comet shattering countertops, drawers, and itself in the process. It had taken both my father and uncle to move that heavy oak table up the porch steps and fandangle it through the door. Two men to move it, and this thing just. The muffled sound from my sister's room might as well have been a signal flare. The monster paused, enveloped itself in a hunter's silence. It, like me, held perfectly still the single accidental sob of a frightened ten-year old girl ended as fast as it came, but it was noticed. I eyed my trophy rack, now considered which would be best to stab an eye or wedge down an open throat. Even in my terror, if it went for my family, I would go down fighting to protect them. My hands glistened with sweat. The greenish light that my fake galaxy above reflected from them filled me with a fox bravery a misplaced confidence to fight monsters with no training, no ability, and most importantly, no actual weapon. I'd need to improvise. If I coup, fast. It was so fast. The monster moved with a speed unbefitting its weight. With two massive strides, it was between our doors. This time, the feet were maddeningly quiet, impossibly quiet. It did not keep the momentum through their door. Instead, it paused on the small carpeted gap. I felt it lower itself, squatted into a crouch. Its breath was heavy, invasive. Horrible nostrils pulled at the air between us, and it waited, quiet, patient. Again, I realized the only thing between me and it was an inch of hollow wood. My lungs halted completely when it rushed, but the rancid smell of its oily hide entered my nose anyway. My eyes watered, small tears formed in the corners. Dear God, please. It was huddled right behind me. I stared at my short nightstand and my phone. It seemed miles away. All my confidence, all my internal bravado gone. Someone save me. Please, God, don't let us be torn apart by this monster. I considered crawling for the phone, but knew I could never do so without alerting it. I could picture that long face on the other side of my door, crouched low with matted hair atop powerful meat, layers of primal muscle coiled into piles of potential violence, waiting for one of its victims to lose their composure. I wondered if it felt pleasure in that. Headlights pierced the edges of my south-facing window blinds. The sound of parting gravel heralded the approach of a large vehicle, Uncle Rick Silverado, had to be. He only lived a mile up the road. That's right, my mother had her phone with her. My cousin James was on leave from the military. He'd be with him for sure. A sensation of relief rose in me. Briefly, I knew when it noticed them. 
Its long breeze paused with realization. I felt its massive weight turn, still crouched next to me. Its bulk brushed against my door. Hinges strained as it pushed inward against my back. That almost broke me. It stayed there, still low and waiting. It had to know I was here. It had to. Its breathing resumed, now much lighter and nasally, but still long. I planted my palms slowly and silently into the carpet with one of its inhales, trying to mask my movement. I rooted my trembling limbs to the floor, tried to prevent them from shaking the wood behind me. God, we were leaning against the same door now. Three distinct slams echoed outside. An extra person I didn't expect good. A mumbled conversation grew ever closer. Sudden terror gripped me as they approached the porch. I realized it was waiting. I had to warn them. I had to tell them it was in here. But how? My heart raced with a surety they were walking into an ambush. A horrifying awareness dawned on me then. Knowledge of the beast's intelligence. Knowledge that only I possessed. Knowledge that more of my family walk into danger. I could scream, but it would kill me before any help could make it to me. I could run, try to jump through the window. It would take the monster a few moments to realize, and I would be able to warn my uncle outside. But if the glass didn't break, it would be through the door and rip me to shreds before anyone even got inside. I could sneak for the phone, the monster paying more attention to the men approaching now. But that was an assumption, a dangerous one considering it continued to lean against the same door I did. The voices paused outside. The monster's breath matched. Silent moments passed. Then the first boot hit the wooden step. It apprehensively approached the darkened, shattered doorframe on the porch. It was horrifying how lightweight that boot was. Two others ascended behind the first, three men in total. I could picture the raised rifles in front of scanning eyes unsure if there was even a threat left, wondering if it was a bear or a mountain lion, none of them dreaming of the monstrously strong beast awaiting them inside, ready to strike. I was running out of time. They were all going to die. We were all going to die. The first steps made it to the door frame. Uncle Rick's voice whispered, Holy shit! His boot crunched the shattered glass as he entered our kitchen cautiously. The monster took a deep, quiet inhale. Lungs filled with fuel to slaughter my family. Chills ran down my back in waves. Coldness gripped all my organs. Every pulse filled with ice. Tears ran freezing trails down my cheeks. My teeth gritted in frustration. I looked up at the viridescent stars. Thought of my sister. Hands clenched into trembling fists. Numbness filled my muscles, but I made my choice. I screamed. Looking back, I think I wanted to say words, but they were panicked and flighty. I just remember my voice felt as a volcano in the Arctic, a rush of heat exploding out in defiance of the cold embracing every inch of me, a piercing, agonized screech of utter and complete fear birthed into the night air. The monster met my scream with a bellow of its own. It's ironic how some emotions permeate every language, even in nature. The staggered wail was not of anger at its plan being foiled. 
nor was it joy at one of its victims finally losing their composure during the hunt. It roared in pure, unadulterated shock. A hole appeared next to my head a second later. An explosion of splinters and anger entered my dim green galaxy. Large gray fingers uncoiled from the fist they were a moment before. Claws black and dirty, slick with blood still. Red, mangy hair covered the back of the hand and the entire forearm. The monstrous palm opened and swung inward towards my head. My entire body hit the ground in a curled ball. There were no more plans. There was nothing else I could do. I had cast the die now. I did all I could. Two of its fingers found purchase in the loose fabric of my pajamas. Panic racked my everything as they curled into a grip. I pressed my back to the bottom of the door, screamed again. This time I was answered by a gunshot. Most people only know guns from movies. You see the hero shooting his pistol in a stairwell or a tight corridor or a, a submarine. Then they have conversations with ease. Guns are not quiet. The first blast inside the trailer rattled my skull and replaced most of the sounds with a constant ringing. Though even that consistent, monotone chime didn't overtake the pained screech of the monster as its back hit my sister's door. Though my hearing was hampered and I dared not look through that hole, I could piece together some of what happened from the vibrations communicated through the trailer's floor. Mumbled shouts, more boots, the kitchen filled with challengers. The monster charged, its gait too large, too fast. It was on them. Gunshots pierced the ringing, made it worse. The floor trembled with collisions and mass. The wall beside me rattled with an impact. A weight thudded to the floor. It scampered in rows, returned to the fight. Dishes and glass shattered, cabinets warped, chairs broke, as did bones. Gunshots gave way to fevered screams and anguished roars. I hoped my warning had saved someone, anyone. Please say it helped. My trembling increased as the brawl ended. Newly gifted Tina Tice masked the victor, and the floor had become depressingly silent. The only vibration was an odd, random shake that paused in irrational intervals. I rose slowly to peer through the hole in my door. What little I could see of the kitchen was destroyed, nearly every inch slicked in bright blood. The metallic tinge overwhelmed my nostrils. A large, bloody splotch adorned the ceiling, red handprints on each side. One tan work boot laid on the counter, with two jagged, splintered bones still in it. Cabinets hung from the wall or were missing entirely, and a destroyed stool lay in a heap on the stovetop. Mangy red form rose from the other side of the small island, coarse, ragged hair now matted in blood. It faced away from me, twisted and jerked. A horrifying rip pierced the ringing in my ears. The monster dropped something heavy on the kitchen floor. It landed with a flat, permanent thump. It stood to its full height slowly, and I could see its long, gray jaw move as it chewed. Yet it seemed to wobble, reeled slightly. For the first time of the night, its footing felt unsure. As it turned back towards me, I ducked in realization. A promise from before, a vendetta not finished. It had won, and now it was time for revenge on the small creature that startled it. 
that ruined its crafty ambush was to blame for every bit of damage and pain it felt now. I returned to my ball, this time with complete hopelessness. Tannic overtook me, sobbing tears now, a constant fight to keep silent. It was going to kill me, I was sure. It was going to eat me. The massive foot landed with wetness, blood so thick on the kitchen floor I could actually feel it, a second less. Sure step landed after that, but to my surprise, it was headed towards the front door. It staggered, planted full weight behind each exhausted step. One footfall crunched glass near the doorway, then heavy knees collapsed down into tile. It held there a moment, then toppled forward, shaking the outer porch with the bulk of its torso, landing with no resistance. Half inside, half outside, its ragged breathes large enough to vibrate through the floor now. Then stillness. I waited, out of fear, shock, disbelief. My mind raced as the weight of loss finally caught up to it. My dad, uncle, cousin, this wasn't supposed to happen to people, to entire families. After a minute, I found my resolve as my rational mind regained control. I crawled to my phone on the nightstand. I palmed it in sweaty, quivering hands. My back leaned against the wall, the porch steps just on the other side, waited for it to rise to continue its rampage, but it didn't. The sob brewed as I looked at the family photo on my phone's background, typed the password in as pained wetness blurred the numbers, exhaustion and anguish finally breaking the levee that held them this long. I can't describe the feeling when that solid, heavy foot crunched into the second porch step. Oh, God. My hands moved in a blur, the message clear and direct. I stared at don't move until it confirmed his scent. Quietly, I prayed Mom would see it fast. The new monstrous feet climbed the stairs and paused in front of the first beast in our doorway. Impossibly, another set ascended after that. Two more. My screen lit up then. A message from Mom, where are you? Before I could type, twin roars rattled the wall I leaned against. Primal guttural, yet somehow more. Human, they continued for a solid minute, each paused only briefly, but never at the same time. Eventually, they faded back into silence. My ears returned to a single, constant ring. Maybe they had descended into quieted grunts. I was unable to hear maybe even tears. The weight of the dead one lifted with terrifying ease, and the two creatures descended the steps of the porch and back into the night. It was finally over. Mom and I texted back and forth. I told her to call 911 and I would stay put and warn her. If those things came back, even though I couldn't hear much, I could feel, and I was too close to this wall to risk calling for help myself. I couldn't hear well enough to speak with a dispatcher anyway. She texted me back that she had reached several family members and the police were already on the way. Looking back, she made the right choice. If she had panicked and called herself, we'd all be dead. A half hour went by before I had the courage to move to Melissa's room. I was finally sure they were gone. My mom sobbed uncontrollably as she hugged me tighter than she ever had. I told her and sister to not go out there. They didn't need to see any of that, neither protested. Even traversing the tiny gap between our rooms scarred my heart forever. James's body was crumpled against the end of the island. 
one arm missing at the shoulder, both orbital sockets replaced with a long horizontal gash. His bottom jaw hung by one joint, unfortunately the one furthest from me. I got to see how few teeth remained in there. Didn't see my uncle or whoever the third person was, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go look for my dad or Daisy or Rose. I shut the door to the carnage, retreated in with my mom and sister, crouched in the corner with them. Fear, grief, and injustice felt in silence for so long, finally received voices. We bawled in huddled anguish. The pain of living, the guilt of surviving, we wept in victorious misery. It's been one year. Three things happened after that night. My baby sister lives with my mom in Seattle. My mother hasn't been sober since, and I've spent every day at Grandpa Murphy's. My father's father, a retired sheriff, military vet, and self-proclaimed gun nut, he's taught me everything about them. Shooting, cleaning, sighting, calibrating. He got me a Remington 20-gauge shotgun for my 16th birthday. I'm ready to put it to use. I suppose you want to know the count. Everyone does. Dad was dead. I didn't hear how. I didn't care to. My Uncle Rick, my cousin James, and one of his military friends. I feel bad I forgot his name. All closed casket funerals. All heroes I never got to thank. Raving something monstrous and violent while I hid away, worthless and pathetic laying in a ball as they died. Every single night, I hear it breathing next to me. Every single night, I get to relive the screams, hear them die, feel them die. I lay there every time, doing nothing. Maybe something as simple as grabbing its leg would save one of them. Maybe stabbing it with a relay race trophy could save them all. But that little girl so afraid to die that night did. I'll never be helpless again. I dropped out of school after that. They had me on several medications I've stopped taking. They took my edge off, made me dull. I've been training with Grandpa. Even in retirement, he's maintained his fitness, still able to march up and down mountains on his bi-monthly hunting excursions I've been joining him on. We've practiced with rifles, small arms, close quarter fighting, and several months of crab maga. The last one is more for fitness and good for a young lady to know, Grandpa says. He always apologizes to me, says he wishes he would been there. I do too, but he shouldn't feel that guilt. It wasn't his fault. There was a triple homicide somewhere east of Livingston. Being an ex-sheriff has its perks, Grandpa said to Pike Light. That's code for we will be moving a lot. It's finally time. My preparation is about to pay off. I'm taking my two favorite pistols, my Sauer P320 and my Desert Eagle. I named them Daisy and Rose. Fitting, ironic, poetic, call it whatever you want. This all started with a Daisy and a Rose barking in the night. It's gonna end that way, too. In the spirit of the spooky season, I've decided to share one of the paranormal stories my mom used to tell me. To give you some context, I come from a Mexican-American background. Although I was born in the United States, my parents were born in Mexico and spent most of their early years there. 
Here's one of the many eerie tales my mom would recount from her own childhood. My mother grew up in the Mexican countryside on a ranch where houses were scattered far apart and nighttime brought pitch, black darkness due to the absence of streetlights. One day she was walking to a party with her brother and sister in the early afternoon when it wasn't as dark yet. As they made their way through the remote area, my mom happened to glance up at the sky and noticed a mysterious light moving about. She kept this sighting to herself, knowing all too well that it was rumored to be a witch, a common belief in many parts of Mexico. They get to the party and enjoyed the party, momentarily forgetting about the odd sight. However, when the party ended around midnight, they began their journey back home through the now pitch, black countryside. Halfway there, the inexplicable light appeared in the sky once more, and this time her siblings also saw it. They continued walking in silence, not daring to mention the eerie sight to one another. Then out of the blue, my mom tripped and turned to look behind her, catching a fleeting glimpse of a mysterious lady. Almost instantaneously, the figure transformed into a glowing light and ascended into the sky, all of this happening in a matter of seconds.